Uh, we'll be reading in the Old Testament this morning, uh, in the book of Second Chronicles, um, starting in chapter 7, verse 1 through to 4. If you don't have a Bible, we might have a few left over on the back table down there. Uh, so yeah, that's um, Second Chronicles, chapter 7, and we're doing three sections. Um, and I'll let you know what the second is once we've done 7 from 1 through to 4. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. Now I'm moving through to chapter 34, verse from 31 through to chapter 35, verse 7. King stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes, decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Then he had everybody in Jerusalem and Benjamin pledge themselves to it. The people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their ancestors. Josiah removed all the detestable idols from all the territory belonging to the Israelites, and he had all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. As long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and the Passover lamb was slaughtered on the 14th day of the first month. He appointed the priests to their duties and encouraged them in the service of the Lord's temple. He said to the Levites, who instructed all Israel and who had been consecrated to the Lord, Put the the sacred ark in the temple that Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, built. It is not to be carried out on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. Prepare yourselves by families in your divisions according to the instructions written by David, king of Israel, and by his son Solomon. Stand in the holy place with a group of Levites for each subdivision of the families of your fellow Israelites. The lay people, slaughter the Passover lambs, consecrate yourselves and prepare the lambs for your fellow Israelites, doing what the Lord commanded you through Moses. And Josiah provided for all the lay people who were there a total of 30,000 lambs and goats for the Passover offering, and also 300,000 cattle, all from the king's own possessions. And now we're moving to uh, chapter 36, verses 11 through to 23. <clears throat> 
Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, in the eyes of the Lord, his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of Babylonians who killed the young men with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare the young men or women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasuries from the Lord's temple, and the treasuries of the kings and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant, who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the king of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation, it rested. Until the 70 years were completed in fulfilment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation through his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. Sometimes you have to wait. Sometimes you have to wait. You may be waiting to get married. You may, may be waiting for your children to come to their senses. You may be waiting for the job that you're after. You may be waiting for healing. You may be waiting for God in some way. You may be waiting for God to do something for you. Now, the temptation for us, for those of us who follow the Lord, who are Christians, the temptation as we wait sometimes is to, to give up, is to give up and not wait for God in the way that we should. Now, the book of 1 and 2 Chronicles is a book written for God's people as they are waiting. 
as they're waiting for the promise of the Messiah to come and for God's kingdom to come. I gave a talk on this many months ago when I visited you last time and we looked at 1 Chronicles and we saw there that the book is actually written a long time after Israel comes back from exile. And so it's actually the last book of the Old Testament, the most likely the last book of the Old Testament to be written. And God's people are waiting. The book of Chronicles, as I've said, it's an Old Testament book. That means it's part of the Bible that was written before Jesus came. And the part of Chronicles that we're looking at today mainly talks about the kings of Israel, the kings of Israel and the temple. Now, as I said, there's a bit of history that we need to know to understand this book. The first is that the Jewish people had been exiled from the land, from the land of Israel, and this is called the exile, when they are kicked out of the land, as we had in that last reading. The Babylonians come and conquer them, the temple's destroyed, and they are taken out of the land of Israel into Babylon. However, as we've gone through 1 and 2 Chronicles, we're now at a time where the uh, where the temple has been rebuilt. That happens under Ezra. So th this book is written after the temple has been rebuilt. This book is written after Nehemiah has rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. And so the Jewish people have come back from exile and they're waiting. They've got the temple. They've got the wall. Jerusalem is starting to be rebuilt as it should be, but there's still no Messiah. Now, the book of Chronicles proclaims to these Old Testament people and to us that God is not finished with the world. As they wait, the promise of this book is God is not finished. The Messiah will come. The Messiah will come. But they're going to have to wait. I just want us to take a moment here and, and, and think about why wait for God? You know, I might wait for my wife when I'm down at the shops and wait for her to turn up somewhere and there's a reason why I'm going to wait. Uh, I might wait for my son as he's, he's coming from some other place. Why wait for God? If you're a Christian, why should you wait for God? Maybe you're not a Christian here today. Why should you join Christians as we wait for Jesus to return. Why should you wait? Well, the Bible says you should wait because of what God is going to do. The Bible says you should wait because God is going to bring his kingdom. He's going to bring his kingdom to this world. And it's worth waiting for. We're going to find out what that kingdom is and why you should be waiting. But this is the reason that God's kingdom is coming and it's worth the wait. It's worth the wait. Now, again, I'm just going to give a brief summary of Chronicles again. So in the book of 1 Chronicles, the first nine chapters had all those genealogies, and I preached on those the last time I was here. We often get lost in those genealogies, but those genealogies, in, in summary, said that 
Israel was God's chosen nation among the nations of the world and that while the other nations of the world had gone their own way and turned to idolatry, God had chosen Abraham and made one nation, Israel, and Israel was God's priestly nation to the world. And so Israel's mission continues. That's the message of those, of those genealogies, that the nation of Israel, their mission continues. And we saw how Jesus brings that to its fulfilment. Then the second part of Chronicles, chapters uh, 10 to 29, says, well, how is this going to happen? And we saw that it's going to happen through David being the king, through Jerusalem being this, uh, this world centre. You had Babylon in the past, and now God's made Jerusalem, and he's going to speak to the world through Jerusalem, and it's going to be through David and the temple. Now we're up to two chronicles. This is our final section. We're going to do a whole book in one section. And as the Jews are waiting, they're given two chronicles from this prophet. And two chronicles is, is all about the kings, isn't it? From Solomon onwards. All, of, all about these kings. And so what we see here is that the prophet is instructing them from the past. He's writing about events which happened hundreds of years before, before them, but he wants to prepare them for the future by reminding them of the past. Now, very often prophets will do that in different ways, don't they? So think of Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel. When they want to talk about the future, they often have a vision, and in the vision they talk about the future. Well, the prophet who wrote Chronicles is actually doing it a different way. He wants to prepare you for the future by telling you about things from the past. And he's saying, you've got to understand the past and what happened in the past and the significance of the past if you want to understand what's going to happen in the future. So it's a book about the future, but he's going to talk about the sons of David. It's a book about the future, but he's going to show them what the Messiah will be. He's going to show them the kings of Israel and so they're to fix their eyes on the future. They're to have their eyes looking to the future, but understanding it from what they've learned in the past. Well, th that's my introduction as to how we place this book in its history. The first nine chapters of 2 Chronicles begin with the glory of the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom's been set up under David, but now it comes to its glory and its fulfilment under Solomon. And this is in the first nine chapters. Now, just come with me to 1 Chronicles, chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. And I want to show you something very interesting about Solomon, which is really going to help us to understand these uh, nine chapters on his life. So 1 Chronicles, chapter 28, verses 5 and 6. This is King David speaking, and he says... Of all my sons, and the Lord has given me many, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord. The kingdom of the Lord, that is the kingdom of God. So Solomon rules over the kingdom of God. You see, Israel in the Old Testament is the Old Testament expression of the kingdom of God. We know when we read the Gospels, don't we, that Jesus says, 
the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, the, the kingdom of God had already existed in the Old Testament. And it's promised to come again. But here we see, now you need to remember that for when you're reading the book of Kings, when you're reading Chronicles, you're reading about the Old Testament kingdom of God. Let's keep reading. What else do we learn about Solomon? Verse 6, he said to me, Solomon, your son is the one who will build my house and my courts, that is, who will build the temple, for I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. Did you know that Solomon was called the son of God? God said, I've chosen Solomon to be my son and I will be his father. Solomon was the son of God and God was his father. So again, when you're reading the book of Kings and Chronicles, you're actually reading about the sons of God. These were the anointed kings, the messiahs. They were anointed with oil. That word messiah means to anoint with. So these are the anointed kings, the sons of God, who rule over the kingdom of God. Now, not only that, Solomon's going to build the, the, the temple. What does it mean to be a temple builder? Well, the temple was the place where God and humanity met. Remember how God is a holy God and sinful people can't come into his presence and so God makes the, the temple, he gets the temple built so that people can approach him through the sacrifice of sin and the priesthood and their mediation and so a holy God can meet with a sinful people through the temple. Well, Solomon is the temple builder. That is, Solomon is the one who brings God and humanity together. This is what the Messiah King, the Son of God, does. He brings God and humanity together. This is why when Jesus comes, he's talking about the temple. Now, in, in these nine chapters, we see the kingdom of God in all its glory. There's the wisdom of Solomon's judgment. You know, when the two women come to Solomon and they're saying, this is my child, and the other one's saying, no, it is, it's my child, and then Solomon grants his wisdom, and his wisdom is seen in judgment amongst the people. There's trade. Under Solomon, we see trade up and down the Red Sea, off to India and North Africa, sorry, the Horn of Africa, all Arabian spices and everything going up to him. It, Jerusalem becomes a centre for trade. Under Solomon, there is peace and safety in Israel. That rarely happens. <laughs> peace and safety in Israel is very rare. It happened under Solomon's rule. There's wealth and abundance for all of God's people. The Queen of Sheba travels up to hear the wisdom of Solomon. As I said, Solomon builds the temple where the glory of God lives in this. You know, this is the glory of the kingdom, isn't it? This is the promise that God had made to his people, the promise that God had made to Abraham coming to its fulfillment. And so 2 Chronicles begins with this message, God is faithful. Look back at your history, Israel. Look back at the, the history of God, Christian. God is faithful. He promised to Abraham that he would make a nation and this nation would speak to the world. And when we look at Solomon, we see the faithfulness of God. Now, we see this with Noah as well, don't we? When we look at Noah's life, we see the faithfulness of God. When we look at Abraham's life, we see the faithfulness of God. 
And when we look at Solomon, we see the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises. This, of course, is why it's important for you to be reading the Bible. Because one of the big messages of the Bible is that God is a faithful God. That God makes a promise and God fulfills his promise. God has promised to save us through Jesus. God has promised for Jesus to return. And we look back at Noah, Abraham, Solomon, and we see the faithfulness of God. Now, this is how the book of 2 Chronicles begins. God is faithful. God had set up his kingdom. And as these Jews, as they are waiting for the Messiah after the exile to come, Chronicles now, after Solomon, tells them about the good and the bad messiahs, the good and the bad sons of God in their history. And it's going to be telling them what they should be looking for. It's going to show them what a good messiah looks like. It's going to show them what a bad messiah looks like. I'll give one example of a bad messiah, and that is the man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam. He's one of those kings, and what, what can often happen when you read the book of Kings and Chronicles is that a king's name will come up, and it'll just appear briefly, and then you won't read about it again. But Jeroboam is a name that turns up near the beginning of each of those books and goes all the way through. Now, why is that the case? Well, because it's what he did was different to the other kings. Let's have a look at what he did. Under Jeroboam, the, um, something new happens in Israel. What we see is that Solomon's glory does not continue forever. His glory does not continue forever. He marries wives foolishly. He marries wives from all the surrounding nations. And he allows them to continue in their worship of other gods. And this influences Israel. And it even to some degree influences him. And so God's judgment on Solomon is that after his death, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of God, will be split. There will be the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. The ten northern tribes will be called Israel. The two southern tribes will be called Judah. And so you get the, this split kingdom from now on. But this man, Jeroboam, is promised by God to be the king of the northern kingdom. And God says to him, Jeroboam, I will give you the ten northern tribes. You're not a son of David, but I will still establish your kingdom and your dynasty as long as you follow me. And so Jeroboam is the one who receives the ten northern kingdoms and Solomon's son and the sons of David now rule in Judah in the south. But Jeroboam has to do something. He has to trust God. He has to trust God. There's hostilities between Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and Jeroboam has to trust God. How does he have to trust God? He has to trust that he can let the Israelites in the north travel to the south to worship in Jerusalem. That's the one thing he's got to do. He's got to allow the Israelites who are in the northern kingdom to go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now let's see what he does. So 2 Chronicles chapter 11. 2 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 15. He had one task. 
This is what he did. And he, that is Jeroboam, appointed his own priests for the high places and for the goat and calf idols he had made. So Jeroboam isn't going to let the Israelites go down to Jerusalem to worship. What he does is he sets up some idols at the very north of Israel and then the south of Israel before the border of Judah. So there are places of worship at the top of his kingdom and down the bottom. So his people don't have to leave their own country. He, he, he doesn't use the Levitical priests. The, Le, the Levitical priests were there and he, he could have used, you know, he, he could have had the Levites serving, but he makes his own priests from, from anyone. Then we read here, um, those from every tribe of Israel uh, who had set their heart on seeking the Lord, the God of Israel, followed the Levites to Jerusalem. And so that those who don't agree with him, they leave to Jerusalem. But you, you see what he's done? He's made his own religion so that people don't have to worship God. He hasn't trusted God. Now, this is how some people in our culture think. They think that they can make up their own religion. They hear about the religion of God, the truth of God's word, but they go, I don't want that. I just want to do my own thing. And so they take a bit from here, a bit from there, or they might try, you know, whatever. They make it up themselves. But it's actually God who decides how we worship him. We don't decide how we're going to worship God. God decides how we're going to worship him. You see, Jeroboam, he did not trust that God would keep him. He did not trust that God would secure his reign, even though his people had to go somewhere else to an, a neighbouring kingdom to worship. He puts his own interests above the interests of God's people. That's what Jeroboam does. He puts his own interests above the godliness and the godly life of his own people. Now, the Messiah is not going to be like this. This is, this is a bad Messiah. You're meant to look at this history and go, this is not the way forward. When the Messiah comes, he's not going to be like Jeroboam. There are other kings which are not as bad as Jeroboam. Je Jeroboam sets up the direction for the rest of the northern kings, and the other kings follow in his footsteps. So there's... Uh, kings like Ahaz and a whole lot of others, and they, they do not listen to the, the prophets. They follow the gods of the other nations. They think that they can just pick and choose between religions. They ignore the words of the prophets. Now, again, if you're waiting for the Messiah to come and you're reading this story, what are you thinking? You're thinking, well, that's not the way forward, is it? You know, that's what got us destroyed and put into exile hundreds of years ago. The Messiah is not going to be like this when he comes. Now, most of the space in Chronicles is actually given to the good Messiahs, the good kings. And I'm going to look at two of them in particular, to Hezekiah and Josiah, because they're presented here as the ideal. Uh, one of the interesting things is that if you read the book of Kings and Chronicles, you'll find that in Chronicles, it doesn't tell you all the bad things that even some of the good kings did, that, that they did. 
And so this has got scholars thinking, you know, why is it that Chronicles puts forward Hezekiah and Josiah in an even more favourable light? And the reason is that they're being put forward for, for what you should expect for a good king. You know, if you look back at the kings of the past, what is it that they did that they did right? Because that's what the Messiah is going to do when he comes. And so we're going to see what these kings did and the pattern that they established. Let's have a look at Hezekiah. First of all, Hezekiah comes, and when he hears the word of God, he's obedient to the word of God. Now, I can say that he's obedient, and we'll all go, yeah, that's a good thing. But I want to say to you today that obedience is a dirty word in our culture. Obedience is a dirty word in our culture. And, when, and, and, and to say to someone, you should obey somebody else is anathema. Well, what we tend to say is you should just get educated properly and then make an informed choice yourself. But it's very hard to find places where children are encouraged to obey their parents. It's not something in the school curriculum, is it? Maybe in Christian schools, I hope that it is. You know, my children, when they were starting to get a bit older and to go out to parties, I realised that at parties there might be drinking and immoral behaviour and possibly even drug use. And so I had to have a, a conversation to them about, you know, what are you going to do in this situation? And so what I said to them was, what you can do is if someone says to you, you know, smoke some of this marijuana, you know, to have some of this, have a go. Uh, or come and get drunk with me, whatever it might be, I said to my children, you can say to them, I'm, I'm not going to do that because I obey my father. I obey my father. Now, that's a really embarrassing thing for a child to say. Obey, I'm not going to obey my... But you see what I mean? Like, that's a problem, isn't it? See, it's embarrassing to say I obey my parents. Guess what? The fact that that's embarrassing, that just proves my point that our culture's got a problem with it. You're obeying your parents in something that is for your safety and you're embarrassed by it. Do you see how perverse our culture is? Really? Um, so what they said instead was, because they didn't want to say that, they're embarrassed to say that, what they said instead was, I, I obey God. And so that's, 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 that's excellent. And so they could go to these parties and say, no, I'm a Christian, I, I obey God, I'm not going to do that. Obedience is godly. Obedience is what it means to be truly human. When we obey, it's not that we're being suppressed. It's when we obey God and his ways that we are truly human. Now, we also see that Hezekiah has to trust when it's difficult. He's got a difficult situation and he's got to trust God in it. Now, with Hezekiah, as you can read elsewhere, the, the Assyrians come against him. And the Assyrians were the superpower of the day. Israel is a small kingdom. The Assyrians are the, the world, you know, like a, a, a big player on the world stage. And they come and you can actually still see their siege ramp that they made. They moved tons and hundreds of tons of dirt near Jerusalem and you can still see it today. And the prophet Isaiah said to Hezekiah, trust God and do nothing. Trust God and do nothing. Don't go to Egypt and hire an army. Don't try to, you know, go to foreign gods 
and uh, you know say to Assyria, "We'll worship your God," and you know whatever. You know that there are a whole range of options that uh, that Hezekiah could have had, but he's simply told to trust God, and then God comes and sends a plague on the army, and many thousands of the Assyrians and their uh, their, their, their support team die, and then they've got to head off. But he has to trust God when it's difficult. The next thing we see is in chapter 29. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 29. 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 2 and 3. Um, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. You see, he goes and fixes up the temple, doesn't he? So he trusts God. He, 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 uh, he, 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 he obeys God. He trusts God even when it's difficult. He goes down and fixes the temple up. So it had got locked up for some reason. People weren't worshipping God there. And so he, he does that. Verse 10, what does he do in verse 10? Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord. So he, he goes to the temple and fixes it up. He makes a covenant with God. You see, this is, this is the good king. This is the good Messiah. He's obedient. He trusts in suffering. He cleanses the temple. He makes a covenant. This is one I only just realized a few days ago. Look at chapter 30, verse, uh, verse 1, and then we'll go down to 10. Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, these are the, the tribes of Israel in the north, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and to celebrate the Passover to the Lord, to the king. And then down in verse 10, the couriers went from town to town in Ephraim. So this is all up in the north, up around Galilee and uh, uh, you know Zebulun and Galilee, all those areas up there, Nazareth, um, as far as Zebulun. But the people scorned and ridiculed them. That's interesting, isn't it, that Hezekiah sent messages out to the tribes and to the villages of Israel, calling them to come and worship the Lord. He celebrates the Passover. Now, we saw this already. Uh, He celebrates the Passover in verse 1, which I just looked at. And then in uh, chapter 29, verse 10, have a look at what's the result of this. Chapter 29, verse 10. Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. And it does. You see, Hezekiah celebrates the Passover. He intercedes for the people and he turns aside the wrath of God. The kings of Israel, the sons of God, could turn aside the wrath of God. God's wrath would be coming towards them. God would send a nation. The king would repent. And then God would send that judgment away. That's interesting, isn't it? The king was key. And when this messianic king repents, he did so for all of the people. So what have we seen? We've seen for what makes a good king. What makes for a good Messiah? He's obedient. He cleanses the temple. He makes a covenant. He invites the villages and tribes of Israel. He sends out messengers to them. He celebrates the Passover. He turns aside the wrath of God. He establishes the kingdom of God. Let's uh, quickly move on to Josiah. We see a similar thing with Josiah. Josiah, he hears the word of God and again he obeys. 
in chapter 34, verse 8. Let me just read to you from 34, verse 8. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign to purify the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan and he, he goes through there and they, they repair the temple of the Lord. You see how he goes to the temple and fixes it up. Chapter 34, verse 31. 34. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant. So he cleanses the temple. He, makes a, a, he renews the covenant. Chapter 35, verse 7. He celebrates the Passover, but he does something different with the Passover. Josiah provided for all the lay people who were there a, thousand of, a, a total of 30,000 sheep and goats for the Passover offering. You see, the true Messiah, he provides the sacrifice for the Passover. Josiah provides for the Passover. This Messianic king provides for the Passover. And for a time, he is able to turn aside the wrath of God. So when the judgment of, come, uh, God, when the judgment of God comes on Israel because of their sinfulness, he is able to turn aside that judgment for a while. Now again, Josiah demonstrates to us the type of king you're to be hoping for. He seeks and obeys God. He suffers when it's faithful. He cleanses the temple. He'll make a covenant. He's going to go out to all the Israel, to, to all the villages of Israel. He'll celebrate the Passover and provide the Passover sacrifice. He'll turn aside the wrath of God for you and he'll establish the kingdom of God. This is what the author of Two Chronicles is reminding these people of the good kings, of the good messiahs, as they're waiting for the Messiah to come. Now, I want you to imagine if you're a son of David, a potential messiah, sitting in a synagogue in Israel at that time, because we know that the sons of David were there. Their, chronic, their, their genealogy is in 1 Chronicles. You can read about it in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 17. So the sons of David, the, kings of, the, the potential kings of Israel, are listening to this. You imagine if you're a son of David and you're listening to this life of Hosea. You imagine if you're a son of David and you're listening to this life of Josiah and you know that there's a king to come who's going to establish God's kingdom. You're going to know what you're going to have to do, don't you? You're going to be sitting there going, I need to be like them. I need to obey. I need to seek the Lord. I need to be prepared to suffer. I need to go and fix up the temple. I need to go and celebrate the Passover and provide the Passover sacrifice. You know, I need to turn aside the wrath of God for God's people. This is what you'd be thinking if you were listening to it. Now, the book also shows us that Hezekiah and Josiah, even though they're as great as they are, they're not the ones who are going to do this because both of them in the end fail. Neither of them bring God's everlasting kingdom. We see that Josiah thought that he was the one and he goes out to fight against the Egyptians and gets killed. <laughs> so he's not the one. But the Babylonians, as we read, come and destroy Israel. And so we are still waiting for this king who's going to do these things. Now, Hezekiah, Josiah, and Jehoshaphat, kings like them, they were great, but by their works, they could not save God's people. Even these kings, and you know, are you going to say to me, you're better than one of these kings? These kings did great things, didn't they? But even their works were not, not enough to save them. 
And I want to say to you, your works are not enough to save you. See, the, the book of Chronicles shows us that our works are not enough. Because if the works of Hezekiah and Josiah were not enough, what about your works? I can tell you, your works don't compare to their works. You do not do enough good to please God. You do not do enough good to, to be able to come before God and say, God, you know, I am worthy for your kingdom. I am worthy for your blessing. So that's what the book of Chronicles shows us, doesn't it? It shows us that even the best of the Old Testament were still affected by sin, that sin had such a hold on the human heart that even our best cannot bring God's kingdom, cannot bring the blessings of God. And that's what we see here. Chronicles is showing us that we need God to come and save us. Chronicles is showing that even the best of humanity cannot do it. Now, I hope from what I've been saying as I conclude with Jesus, I hope you can see how Jesus fulfills the book of Chronicles. It's not just a verse here or a verse over there. We can think that way, can't we? We can think, oh, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Yeah, there's this little verse or there's this chapter. They are true. I'm not taking away from those. But I want you to see its entire books are written about him. He, he fulfills all of 1 and 2 Chronicles, the whole thing. We can think that the Bible was written for me. And sometimes we say that the Bible, you know, God's given us his word. Uh, the Bible was written for us to read. But I want to suggest to you that the first person that the Bible was written for was Jesus. He's the first person that the Bible's written for. I'm not saying it's not for us. But I'm saying that the Bible is there first for Jesus and then for us. You see, this whole book has been written for Jesus to read as, he, as God comes to us and lives the life of a perfect man. Because when Jesus comes, he is a true human. He's a true human. And he has to learn obedience. He has to suffer as a man. He has to do the task that humanity was meant to do. And Jesus would have read this book. We read in the Gospels that Jesus heard the scriptures. He read the scriptures and obeyed them. So Jesus would have read Chronicles. And from Chronicles, when he's looking at the life of Josiah and Hezekiah, he would have seen what he needed to do. This is why Jesus speaks about coming to fulfill the scriptures. And so we see the story of Josiah and Hezekiah perfected in the life of Jesus. He is the true one who seeks and obeys God. He's the true one who is faithful even when it's difficult. He sends out the messengers like Hezekiah did to the towns and villages of Israel. He makes the covenant. He celebrates the Passover and provides the Passover sacrifice. He is the one who truly turns aside the wrath of God from us. And God has declared his son to be the fulfillment of this by raising him from the dead and showing that Jesus brings the resurrection kingdom of God. 
Jesus does what we have failed to do, what we've all failed to do. And the Gospels, when we read them, they're a record of how Jesus fulfills the hope of Chronicles. All of the things I've been talking about are just the plot of the Gospels, aren't they? But it's what the kings of Chronicles do. So to finish up, I began today by talking about waiting and how these, these Jews would have been reading this book and learning what they, about what they had to wait for for a coming king. Is it worth the wait? Is it worthwhile waiting for Jesus to come? Yes, it is. Because he is the one who's going to bring the true forgiveness of sins, who has brought it and turns aside the wrath of God completely from your life. He is the one who gives us the hope of the resurrection so that death and the suffering of this world will not be the last, uh, the last word on our life. He is the one who truly brings God and humanity together. He is the one who brings the resurrection kingdom of God. He is the one in this world of suffering who will bring God's blessing to us and this world. So we're not to fix our eyes on Hezekiah and Josiah, as the ancient Jews would have done. But now the New Testament tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to fix our eyes on him, because he is worth the wait. Amen.